So today is going to be a bit of a rant. The latest spate of gun control laws being proposed has kind of ticked me off. No, actually, they've made me pretty damn mad. So let's dissect the current crop of infringements and expose them for what they are. Hey, scallywags, welcome to another episode of our podcast, A Pirate Talks Guns. I'm your host, John Sello. Sit back, relax, enjoy the show. Thanks for dropping in and listening. So yeah, I'm kind of mad today. I really should know better than to read the news, but I like to stay informed. What I don't like is what I read. Every time some whack job uses a gun in a crime of any kind, our elected officials feel the need to author and pass another gun law. These same politicians who, when they're taking their cushy jobs surrounding firearms security, swore an oath to uphold the Constitution. But being politicians and prevarication being one of, if not the most important attribute that propels them into office, They then use the Constitution, and specifically the Second Amendment, as toilet paper. Now, is this done to guarantee the safety of the people they represent? Of course not. It's done to pander to the vocal and ignorant minority that the Powells count on to vote for them and keep them in their well-paying, undemanding jobs. The panderers I read about today are many, but I'm going to focus on two. We'll start with Illinois where Democratic Governor J.B. Pritzker signed into law a bill which, among other things, establishes a ban on semi-automatic rifles, high-capacity magazines, and gun attachments that simulate automatic fire. Because all of these things are the problem, right? Now I was born and raised in Chicago and grew up under the hobnailed boot of some of the most draconian gun laws the country had at the time. And where you live is a choice and I chose to get the hell out of Chicago and Illinois just as fast as my young little legs could carry me. You know, Chicago, the city with the fourth highest homicide rate in the country, with one district having a per capita murder rate of 146.8. Just so you know, the world's most violent city, Tijuana, Mexico, has a murder rate of 138 per 100,000 residents. Now, if you bother to look at the crime statistics, which... Legislators never bother to do because they don't want their opinions confused by facts. Semi-automatic rifles, high-capacity magazines, and gun attachments that simulate automatic fire contributed very little to the overall homicide caseload. But the vocal but ignorant minority demands that something be done. And what politician is going to let a little thing like a constitutional right get in the way of their staying in office? Then I read about my favorite real-life dystopian state, California. Only in America do we see the kind of carnage and chaos of gun violence that destroys our communities and our sense of safety and belonging, said Governor Gavin Newsom. Here's what the laws passed in the most fled state in the Union provide. Enhancing the existing licensing system, ensuring those permitted to carry firearms in public are responsible and law-abiding individuals, protecting children, setting a minimum age requirement of 21 years of age to obtain a concealed carry weapons license, advancing stronger training requirements, ensuring proper handling, loading, 
unloading and storage of firearms, and identifying certain sensitive public places, establishing safe community places where people should expect freedom from gun violence. Now, here in South Carolina, the first three aspects of Newsom's uh, plan have existed for quite some time. I don't have a problem with any of these. The last one is the one that gets to me. All the no-concealed carry and gun-free zones are nothing but baited fields for criminals. If someone is able to meet the standards set forth in the first three points, why shouldn't they be allowed to carry and have the ability to defend themselves? Are these safe community places going to be continuously manned by law enforcement officers? What guarantees the safety of people in these safe community spaces? And much like businesses that don't allow employees to carry concealed, they strip law-abiding individuals of their ability to provide for their own safety. I think that any place that prohibits concealed carry should be held liable for any injury or death that takes place on their premises when, had the victim been armed, they could have defended themselves. Now, anyone with even a scintilla of common sense realizes that laws are only effective with people who obey them and, most importantly, when they're actually enforced. A quick glance at the city screaming for more gun laws are the ones that led the whole defund the police movement, push bail reform policies, and take soft on crime approaches. Now, I'm no rocket surgeon, but when you take the penalties for committing crimes away, there isn't a lot of incentive for criminals to think twice about committing them. The country's been swirling towards the toilet drain for the past decade. Rights become wrong, immoral has become moral, and progressive policies have succeeded in turning America into a bizarre world. In the same session of reading the news about the enacted and proposed new gun control laws, I also read these interesting tidbits. Hundreds of teenagers stormed the streets of downtown Chicago, smashing car windows, attacking bystanders, and sending panicked tourists running from the sound of gunfire. Now, rioting, pillaging, looting, and burning has apparently been just fine with the progressives the past five years or so. Now, how many of the savages have laid to waste the cities and done their Christmas shoplifting without any kind of consequence? Just about all because to arrest and try them would invalidate the progressive agenda. It's far easier to blame responsible, law-abiding citizens because the Cretans that pass the restrictive laws don't want their businesses or neighborhoods burnt to the ground by mostly peaceful rioters. Chicago mayor-elect Brandon Johnson warned against vilifying youth while condemning a chaotic teen takeover of the Loop over the weekend which saw hundreds of young people descend on the downtown area for two nights in a row. And I agree, don't vilify them. Enforce the law, arrest them, and try them for their crimes. But apparently, that's not the politically correct way these days. So I guess the progressive way is to just let it go, because something like this hasn't already happened, nor will it happen again, right? Well, in the immortal words of Ron Popeil, but wait, there's more. Huge mob ransacks California gas station, police outnumbered. In Compton, California, a large group of people blocked an intersection as part of a street takeover, 
with video footage showing cars drifting in circles and screeching around at 2.30 a.m. Video taken of the incident shows unidentified people first crowding around the entrance of the convenience store at the Arco gas station and kicking down its glass door to gain entry. Once inside, people could be seen swiping items from the store shelves with one smiling person taking packages of condoms and cigarettes. The Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department said products collectively worth thousands of dollars were stolen and that the store suffered serious damage. Tellingly, no arrests have been made in connection to the incident. See, California has decriminalized a lot of, well, crimes in the politicians' quest to pander to the progressives so they can stay in office. You're pretty much allowed to steal up to a certain dollar amount there before you're arrested for it. And if you are arrested, you go right back out on the street until you steal the requisite dollar amount to be arrested again. Wash, rinse, repeat. It's this acceptance of lawlessness that is the cancer affecting the country and emboldening criminals. Assaults on law enforcement officers were pretty much unheard of until the progressives began demonizing the police. The failure of progressive George Soros-backed prosecutors to fulfill their duties and enforce the laws will only lead to further violence and the inevitable societal downfall. Now, my time in the military let me see firsthand what life in third world countries is like. Corrupt government officials, the absence of any form of established rights, and the selective enforcement of laws make places like Afghanistan and Iraq the hellscapes they are. And we're slowly inexorably heading in that same direction here in the good old U.S. of A. We complain about the debacle of the Afghanistan pullout and the madness of the people at the Kabul airport trying desperately to get out. That was a far less terrifying scene than the streets of Chicago during the takeover. And trust me, you'll see it again as the animals got away with it this time, and emboldened will certainly do it again. In a world that is growing more and more dangerous, our legislators want to disarm us, making us fat sheep ready for the wolves to feed on. In the Chicago mostly peaceful teen takeover, one woman and her husband were attacked and beaten after a group of teens jumped up and down on the couple's windshield. The husband was transported to a local hospital for treatment. Maybe things would have been different if the victims were afforded the tools to defend themselves. In recent years, there have been numerous studies and analyses that have examined the relationship between gun control measures and crime rates, providing valuable insights into the effectiveness of such measures. So let's take a look at some of the most recent findings on this topic. I'll start with background checks. Background checks are commonly used in many countries, including here in the United States, to prevent individuals with a history of violence or mental illness from obtaining firearms. According to the Federal Bureau of Investigation, in 2020, a total of 39,695,315 background checks were conducted through the National Instant Criminal Background Check System, NICS, out of these, 319,356 background checks resulted in denials. It's important to note that not all the denials were 
necessarily related to gun-related crimes, as background checks may also be denied for other reasons, such as prohibited categories of individuals or incomplete information. The assault weapons ban. The ban on assault weapons, which was in effect in the United States from 1994 to 2004, prohibited the manufacture, sale, and possession of certain types of firearms, including semi-automatic rifles with detachable magazines and features such as pistol grips, folding stocks, and bayonet mounts. A study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 2019 found that the federal ban on assault weapons was not associated with a statistically significant reduction in mass shooting incidents or fatalities. Gun buyback programs. Gun buyback programs, which allow individuals to voluntarily surrender firearms in exchange for compensation, are sometimes implemented as part of gun control measures. A study published in the Journal of Urban Health in 2019 found that gun buyback programs were associated with a modest reduction in firearm suicides, but did not have a significant impact on firearm homicides. It is worth noting that the effectiveness of gun buyback programs may depend on various factors, such as the design and implementation of the program, the level of participation, and the types of firearms that are surrendered. Now, while there is evidence that suggests that some gun control measures may be effective in reducing crime rates, there are also challenges and limitations associated with these measures. It's important to acknowledge and understand these challenges in order to have a comprehensive understanding of the effectiveness of gun control measures in reducing crime rates. The effectiveness of gun control measures depends on the level of compliance and enforcement even with strict gun control laws in place, there may still be challenges in enforcing these laws effectively. For example, illegal firearms may still be obtained through the black market or other illegal means, and individuals who are prohibited from owning firearms may still be able to obtain them. Again, laws are only effective with people who obey them and, most importantly, when they're actually enforced. Gun ownership is protected as a constitutional right in many countries, obviously including the United States, where the Second Amendment guarantees the right to bear arms. This presents a challenge in implementing certain types of gun control measures as they face legal and constitutional challenges. For example, measures such as banning certain types of firearms or imposing strict licensing requirements face legal challenges based on Second Amendment rights. We hear a lot of whining from the progressives about their right to do this and their right to do that. Having read the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, I just can't find where the right for a lot of their demands exists. The Second Amendment is pretty clear, though, right there in black and white. Now, do I think that the Second Amendment provides rights without limitation? Actually, no. There are people that shouldn't be allowed to own guns. Convicted felons, people convicted of domestic violence, and those who have been diagnosed with a mental illness that makes them a danger to themselves or others are just a few that I think lose their Second Amendment coverage. It's important to approach the issue of gun control 
with a balanced and evidence-based approach, taking into consideration the diverse perspectives and concerns of different stakeholders. Policymakers, researchers, and communities need to engage in informed and constructive discussions on this topic, considering the best available evidence, taking into account the challenges and limitations, and workings towards evidence-based policies that aim to balance public safety with individual rights. Efforts to reduce crime rates should also be approached in a comprehensive manner that addresses not only the issue of gun control, but also other underlying factors that contribute to crime, such as poverty, education, mental health, and community policing. Implementing a multifaceted approach that includes a combination of community engagement, law enforcement efforts, and social interventions may be a lot more effective in addressing the root causes of crime and creating safer communities. Collaboration between the different stakeholders, including law enforcement agencies, community organizations, public health experts, and policymakers, is essential in developing and implementing effective measures to combat gun violence. This can help ensure that measures are evidence-based, tailored to local contexts, and responsive to the needs of different communities. Engaging in open and respectful discussions, considering diverse perspectives, and finding common ground can lead to more effective and sustainable solutions. And that's really something we all want. Well, that's my rant for today. If you enjoy this podcast, consider subscribing and letting a few of your friends know about it. Until next time, shoot safe.